You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 127, by Rudolf Steiner, translated by Matthew Barton, entitled The Mission of the New Spirit Revelation, The Pivotal Nature of the Christ Event in Earth Evolution, 16 lectures. This is Lecture 5, entitled Wisdom, Prayerfulness, and Certainty in Life, given in Basel on the 23rd of February, 1911. Properly perceived, spiritual science gives certainty and strength. How can it engage positively in life? Many people think that it impedes rather than supports us in leading a really good human life if we study this realm and gather spiritual insights. Why do we actually need so much spiritual knowledge? Why do we need to learn so much about the evolution of the earth and of a whole planetary system? Simply seeking the higher self within us, they think, and becoming a better person in consequence makes us the best anthroposophists. Other minds of a more theoretical bent, on the other hand, like to hear about what constitutes the human being, to exert their intellect in studying how humanity has evolved through the different cultural epochs, to enumerate all these eras. They wish to learn such things as soon as possible, and preferably note down the most important teachings in summarized form, and be able to disseminate them as a kind of catechism. Neither of these two outlooks in any way encompass what the science of the Spirit can be for a person, and what it can become for someone who by means of it is able to find their right footing in life. Certainly it is true to say that we are constituted of a physical, etheric, and astral body, and I, capital. But it is mistaken to think that simply listing these facts is enough. This gives us nothing but a schema. Only when we apply such knowledge to life itself do we really learn anything about the human being. But we cannot do so until we recognize that merely knowing these names is not the important thing, so much as perceiving how these four aspects are connected and interrelated in the human being. The important thing is whether, say, the etheric body is more or less strongly connected to the physical body, whether the etheric body and the astral body have an affinity and seek a close connection with each other, or whether they are more loosely connected. If we consider these matters, it becomes apparent that this interrelationship of the diverse bodies changes during the course of humanity's evolution on earth. Compared to today, it was different in the past and will be different again in future. If we look back to the ancient Egyptians in very early millennia of Egyptian culture, and thus to ourselves in former incarnations, we find a loose connection in those days between physical, etheric, and astral bodies. Today we have a far denser connection between them, 
and in future this connection will become ever more compact. In this light we can discover a meaning in our passage through the different cultural epochs. Why do people continually reincarnate, we may ask? Since the nature of the interconnection of our being's sheaths keeps changing, we repeatedly encounter a different kind of outward human existence. As Chaldeans, you see, we had a very different configuration of these bodies than we do today, and in future this configuration will again be different. Our experiences of life are different in consequence. And now it is important to ask, so that we can form the right thoughts about it, how the inward core of our being, which passes from one incarnation to the next, relates to the garment in which it is clothed each time, to the astral body, etheric body, and physical body. External science basically only investigates the outer sheath and knows nothing of the deeper laws that hold sway from one incarnation to the next. But actually mainstream science also overlooks the real deeper meaning of this outward body. We can discover this if we consider the frames of reference of outward science and others which it dismisses. Here it is very interesting to note that for a long time science tended to ascribe free will to human beings. But as I have pointed out previously, in more recent times science often disputes or rejects this idea, citing empirical research. This directs us to study the course of outward life. For instance, you can use statistics to ascertain how many suicides occur in a particular region, and this will show a certain regularity in the suicide rate. Statistics show this to be a regular occurrence. A certain number of people are simply condemned to commit suicide, so how can one speak of free will? Then we could go a lot further in this direction and point to insurance procedures, which calculate and formulate the number of people who survive beyond the age of 30. In other words, there are numerical formula that can establish how many of those born today will still be here in 30 years. Thus life and death are subject to strict outward laws. Mainstream science has acknowledged these things, but it will be compelled to acknowledge others too. Realities are coming to light that will compel people to think in spiritual scientific terms. Science is generally little inclined to assimilate new ideas swiftly, but adheres to a curious habit. You often hear rather grand assertions that in the, quote, dark ages, close quote, there were people who resisted the teachings of Copernicus. His ideas had a hard time making headway against the dark minds of those times. Yet those most vociferous about this are precisely the ones who not only behave in the same way towards spiritual science, but towards scientific facts that now compel us to seek spiritual laws. For instance, a physician in Berlin has discovered certain numerical ratios in human life. This physician, Wilhelm Fleece, has started to record how in particular families births equate to the number of deaths, 
For instance, let us say that a woman dies on a particular day, 1,428 days before this, this person's first grandchild was born. 1,428 days after she died, the second grandchild was born. Thus we have here the death of the grandmother and in symmetrical relationship to it, both before and afterward, the birth of a grandchild. As if this were not enough, in a period of seven times 1,428 days after the grandmother's death, a great-grandchild is born. If we study this, we keep finding very specific numerical relationships, which ultimately, and very wonderfully, reveal a connection between births and deaths. Fleece has discovered such things in numerous instances. Yet science seems reluctant to acknowledge such a thing, since it stands in too great a contradiction to it. Even improvements in health are subject to numerical factors. Certain numerical factors can be seen to govern the number of deaths from tuberculosis in a particular period, compared with a number of such cases from previous decades. Physicians say they have reduced the number of cases through hygienic measures. But Fleece proved that this can be calculated according to arithmetical factors. Modern science dislikes this, but is being compelled to acknowledge that objective arithmetical factors hold sway. It will eventually return to the old saying of Pythagoras, number governs everything that exists. While we do calculations inwardly, the higher spirits have long since performed calculations that they embody accordingly in living reality. The saying of Pythagoras that God is a mathematician seems to be gaining credence. But on the other hand, this will also reinforce the view of external science that our human interiority plays no part in our destiny. If it is arithmetically determined when we must die, if births and deaths are connected, say, by periods of 1,428 or multiples of these, it seems that our inward life is harnessed to mighty outward laws and conditions. It seems we might have to give up speaking of particular laws that hold sway within us. Yet we can cite outer reasons that will demonstrate that this is not entirely true. However carefully it is calculated that a certain number of suicides occur in a particular place or a certain number of robberies, does this prove that people are compelled to be robbers? Laws of probability can enable us to calculate the probable length of a person's life. But I do not think that anyone will admit they must die on the day determined arithmetically. Our inner being is not compelled to follow this lawfulness of mathematical formula. What is happening when Fleece proves that 1,428 days pass between the death and the birth of two children, respectively before and after it? Does this prove something about the inner lawfulness of our I-being? The relationship between our inner core and the outward course of life is not easily discernible. How does this accord with the fact that we are subject to karma? and that we must follow the dictates of our inner I-being. It is not easy to understand, 
but I will try to clarify it with a metaphor. It is perfectly possible for two occurrences, two currents, two realities, that do certainly relate to one another, nevertheless to unfold independently of each other. Picture this. If you want to go from here to Zurich, you take a train. You can see when the train departs from the timetable, which contains all sorts of numbers. So, in a sense, you have an inward connection with these numbers. In your thoughts, aims, inward experience, you feel yourself to be dependent on the numbers in the timetable. But beside this fact of being able to study the timetable, surely there is another that relates to you inwardly, your will and motivations, the fact of wishing to board the train. By studying the timetable, you will never decipher whether you are a good or bad person, a wise person or a fool. And in the same way that it is immaterial for our inner soul which timetable we study, it is immaterial for our karma in life which numbers are ascertained by calculations such as those conducted by fleece. We embark upon the stream of life that is governed by laws that are connected with our own inner lawfulness only by virtue of what we ourselves cause to happen. We must decide to board the train, and it is equally true that we must determine, through the inner laws of karma, to embark upon a stream of life which is then in turn governed by arithmetic. Why am I saying all this? It is because the spiritual seeker should increasingly acquire a feeling for the complexity of life should recognize that life is something we should not imagine we can encompass with the easiest and most comfortable thoughts. It is wrong to think, as many do, that life can be understood by citing a few phrases drawn from spiritual science. We need to have the will to delve ever deeper into these matters. We must gain the sense that the thoughts that structure the world also apply to human beings. If there were no connection at all between outward laws and human karma, the whole of life would fall apart. This can be shown by two facts. In spiritual science we try to present comparisons that are as valid as possible. The numbers on a train timetable are of course connected with practical realities. Although it has nothing to do with the timetable, whether or not we go to Zurich, the timetable is, nevertheless, connected with human circumstances. People have compiled it so as to accord more or less with actual circumstances. It is generally adapted to human life and needs. Something similar is true of our karma and the flux of our life which karma governs. Here, too, the beings of the higher hierarchies have, in quotes, determined the timetable according to numerical relationships that statistics can ascertain by arithmetical calculations so that they correspond to general human circumstances. On being reincarnated, one person will encounter a comfortable set of circumstances while another person will meet uncomfortable ones. It is not true to say that in every family this law applies of a grandchild being born always 1,428 days before the birth of the grandmother but if we consider that the number 1,428 is divisible by 28, it is 51 times 28, 
we can understand this numerical relationship better. If in these calculations we will not always come to the number 1,428, but usually between death of a family member and the birth of another, a multiple of 28 will be in play. The multiple may be 13 or 17 or something else, but it will contain the number 28. There is a patterning regularity at work here. The timetable allows us to board various trains, and similarly our karma allows us to arrange our lives, whether comfortably or uncomfortably. I am saying this not only to suggest how complex these outward conditions are, but I would like to show at the same time that we can draw a moral consequence from such insights. And this is the infinite importance of what spiritual science gives us. We can say that we stand in the world and find within it the numerical relationships that show how our outward life is governed. It took long ages of human cultural evolution to discover this. But how much do we actually know about such lawful regularity? Infinitely little, if the truth be told. Slowly and gradually we discover something about divine wisdom, but the loveliest and most important wisdoms are the very ones that urge us to be humble, that show us how little the thoughts we have can encompass life. This recognition can spur us on to strive further toward the light. This moral sensibility, this reverence toward the wisdom of the cosmos, is something we can acquire that makes us better people and we acquire this feeling toward wisdom, it comes over us, when we recognize that this wisdom stood close to us in our existence between death and a new birth. When the need arises for us to descend again to earthly existence, we choose which train we must embark in to fulfill our karma. We are faced by a decision, and we decide whether this or that family union, these or those parents, are the ones we choose. But if we were asked today which the best conditions for our incarnation would be, which family it would be best for us to come to, we would not find the answer. In other words, before incarnating we are more perspicacious than we are in our physical existence. For then, before we were re-embodied, we made the right choice. The sense that we have not become cleverer since incarnating than we were before cannot lead to pride about the things we may have achieved. Why are we so much cleverer before birth and able to make the right choice? We would not be so alone, but in our life between death and rebirth we are pervaded by other forces before we enter physical existence. When we enter upon physical existence, we are pervaded by the substances of the earthly realm that surround us, by oxygen, nitrogen, and so on. We absorb them, and they are then contained in our bodily sheaths. When we lay aside the body again and pass through the gate of death, living between death and rebirth, we are absorbed by the beings of the higher hierarchies. In the same way that we live here on earth with the diverse realms of animals, plants, and minerals, we live together there with the archai, the archangels and angels. We are integrated into their being in the same way that we are here integrated into physical substances. 
In the same way that these substances assert their laws here on earth, the iron in the blood, for example, pulsing according to its laws. So between death and rebirth, the beings of the higher hierarchies are active within us, and their wisdom pushes us into the right stream of existence. The beings of the higher hierarchies bear wisdom within them in the same way that we bear physical substances within us. And it is only right and proper if the moral consequence of this for us is a sense of humility. When we rightly discern what a small portion of the sublime wisdom of these beings we have assimilated so far in physical life. Between death and rebirth we are embedded in the womb of these beings of the higher hierarchies and must surrender ourselves to them. Not to want this would be like trying to live without absorbing the physical substances of hydrogen, oxygen and so on. It would be absurd to try to live without surrendering ourselves fully to the beings of the higher hierarchies. If you consider that you must surrender yourself to the beings of the higher hierarchies between death and rebirth, you may ask how best to prepare yourself for that existence. The very best preparation is, now, already, between birth and death, to unfold this feeling of devotion toward the divine spiritual world. All that we assimilate in life becomes reverence and devotion if we imbue ourselves with the right feelings. Humility and devotion to the world of spirit will pervade all our feelings. If we start to think and to live in this way, we will also find balance in our relationship to the surrounding world. These things regulate and harmonize the rest of our feelings. Many sullying influences from the outer world find their way into anthroposophy. They do not originate in anthroposophy itself, but people convey them into it from outward life. Let us imagine someone who is industrious and hard-working in the world, and yet to others it appears that this is driven by ambition. He overdoes things, saps his own strength, fails to observe the healthy limits to work. And now he engages with anthroposophy, where he encounters ideas very different from those he had previously. And yet he can carry this general quality he possessed before into anthroposophy. He may hear, for instance, that study is necessary to help the soul progress, and so he studies, but does so like a student who wants to be top of the class. He should learn to achieve more balance in the expenditure of his energies should learn to see what he is capable of achieving according to the powers that karma has assigned him. He ought not to go overboard in his studies of anthroposophy. Or maybe he has heard that it is good for spiritual development to refrain from eating meat, but he forgets to ask whether this is good for his body. He refrains from meat to hasten his development. But anthroposophy should teach us that we must first examine our karma to see if we can immediately adhere to the loftiest rules or not. Calm, humble observation of our own karma, of our own capacities and powers, is something we acquire if we rightly engage with what spiritual science can give us. Those who have made the most progress in esoteric matters are most careful about observing this rule of balance. Sometimes, however, the opposite occurs. 
when outward circumstances obstruct proper schooling, people may do violence to themselves, push through toward the goals they have set themselves, do themselves spiritual mischief, so as to be able to gain an answer immediately to whatever question arises. More advanced pupils will never do this. They will consider the question that faces them, but then ask themselves whether they are at present capable of finding a full answer to it. Let us first wait, they will say, to see if the beings of the world of spirit grant us the answer to it. And rather than go at the question full tilt, they will hold back initially. They know that they must wait. And they can wait because they are so full of the knowledge that life lasts eternally, and that karma, which they never ignore, gives each person what is right for them. And then at some point or other they will receive an inner sign. The powers of the spiritual world will reveal the answer to them at last. This may take years or perhaps several incarnations, but this characterizes the right outlook, being able to wait, patience, finding balance, never being in too great a hurry. Those who allow the teachings of spiritual science to work upon them will learn to master their feelings in such a way that this balance, this harmony, becomes observable. With this outlook we penetrate the astral body with the I, capital, such that this astral body absorbs truths from the spiritual world, like, to use a trivial expression, a sponge absorbing water. Spirit knowledge gradually informs the astral body and imbues it. Today we live in an era in which it is necessary and will become ever more necessary to pervade the astral body with spiritual knowledge. The changing times are leading toward a situation when the human astral body on passing through the gate of death and subsequently embarking on future incarnations will be plunged in darkness and will fail to find its way in the world of spirit unless it has already filled itself with spiritual knowledge. But if it is pervaded by the knowledge of the spirit that we are now absorbing, it will become a source of light and illumine its surroundings. The wisdom we absorb here becomes light in the spiritual world. If we ask ourselves why Anthroposophy has only arrived on the scene now and did not previously exist. The answer is because there was once a primordial wisdom that shaped and informed people without them needing to do anything about it. This was a kind of inheritance that people received from Old Moon. And with it they could penetrate the world of spirit. It lasted until the Christian era and then people ceased being able to directly assimilate spiritual wisdom. Now we must first imbue the soul with spiritual scientific knowledge, and this will become the power enabling us in future to enter the world of spirit and illumine it with our inner light. Conditions alter from era to era as humanity evolves. All esotericists know that there is a wisdom that originated on Old Moon whose vestiges still worked on into the 15th or 16th centuries. This meant that when people entered the world of spirit, they perceived the light there that shone without their involvement. But today, 
we could assimilate as much as we liked of this ancient wisdom passed down as legacy to humanity, and it would no longer shine once we had passed through the gate of death. Only the wisdom we absorb through Christ by saying, quote, not I, but Christ in me, close quote, will be a beacon for our future passage through the gate of death. And so we absorb a science of the Spirit pervaded by Christ and thereby possess a source of light in the astral body when we cross the threshold. But when we absorb this Christ-imbued Spirit knowledge, when we fill our astral body with it, it does not remain mere wisdom. It penetrates our feelings, too. We learn what occurred on old Saturn, on old Sun, and on old Moon, and what the mission of the Earth is. If you read your way into the accounts I gave in my title Occult Science and Outline, you will feel that the description of Saturn strikes a quite different tone from that of the other planetary conditions. In the description of Saturn conditions, you can feel a certain austerity or acerbity. You can feel this inwardly, and this is necessary. Sun existence can be felt as blossoming, burgeoning life. The description of old moon can convey a certain dark and melancholy feeling, informing all the thoughts about this planetary embodiment. A sensitive person can perceive this, even as far as tasting it on their tongue. Dullards will say that the descriptions are uneven, the style erratic. But we should know that this is necessary, and we should also know why this is so. We must know why a melody composed of three particular tones is necessary to embody and resonate with accompanying words. And when we know this, we can also transform it into feelings and send these feelings out into the world. The feelings we kindle within us in this way transform themselves. The wisdom that is absorbed by the astral body transforms into a voluntary surrender to world conditions, and this then takes a hold of our etheric body. If we are wise, we prepare our future path. The powers with which we descend into our next incarnations form and penetrate the etheric body. If we have imbued our etheric body with true and genuine prayerfulness and piety, and it is then dissolved into the cosmic ether, we have given to the cosmos an etheric body pervaded by prayerfulness, and it will benefit the whole world. But if we are unpious, materialistic, then we lay aside an etheric body that has a destructive, eruptive effect when it is dissolved into the world ether. The wiser we are, the more we serve ourselves directly, but indirectly also the world. The more prayerful we are, the more we directly serve the world, for piety is communicated to the whole world. And spiritual science can give not only wisdom and prayerfulness, but also certainty and awareness of the life forces of the body. Conscious connection with the spiritual world already gives such life forces. I have often mentioned that Fichte, who stood at the threshold of anthroposophy, knew something of these matters. There lived in him such a certainty that in speaking of the nature of the human being, he could say this, quote, I raise my head keenly aloft 
to the plunging mountain slopes and to the thundering waterfall and to the crashing clouds afloat in a sea of fire. And I say this, subquote, I am eternal and I defy your power. Break upon my head, all of you, and you, the earth and the skies, whip yourselves together into a wild tumult. You elements, rage and foam and pulverize in your wild conflict the very last solar particle of the body I call mine. Nevertheless, my will alone, with its firm intent, will hover keen and cold above the ruins of the universe. For I have grasped my destiny, and it is more enduring than you. It is eternal, and I am equally eternal. Close subquote, close quote. Steiner again. Certainty in life springs from the awareness that the human being walks within the eternity of the spirit. Can a person thus rooted in the eternal spirit grow weak? And it is spirit knowledge that pours ever more such strength into us. What do we gain from this strength? Wisdom gives the astral body what raises us increasingly over inhibiting forces. Prayerfulness governs the powers and the right structuring of the etheric body. But what streams into our body when we know ourselves to be connected with the eternal is assurance in life, and this imparts itself to us right into the forces of the physical body. If we possess this certainty, then maya, illusion, and deception fall away. It is illusory to say that our physical body decomposes only into dust at death. No, it is not a matter of indifference to know how the physical body was first configured, how we formed it. If such assurance in the eternal imbues this physical body, then we give back to the earth what we acquired as assurance in life. We fortify our planet earth through what we acquired during our lifetime. Through our physical body we give our certainty in life to the world. In the degenerating physical body, the degenerative part is only maya. If you continue to observe the physical body beyond death, you see that the degree of assurance a person acquired in life flows back into our earth. And so, through wisdom, prayerfulness, and assurance in life, we fortify in the astral body, in the etheric body, and in the physical body, what we can develop as our greatest virtues for the whole evolution of our earth. Thus we work upon our whole planet earth, but at the same time we acquire a sense of the fact that we do not stand here in isolation, but that what we develop inwardly has value and importance for the whole. And just as there is no solar particle in us that does not bear within it the laws of the universe, so no single human being fails either to enhance or degrade the universe through what they do or omit to do. We can give to the ongoing world process as much as we take from it, and we can degrade it by omitting to concern ourselves with its enhancement, by failing to fill ourselves with prayerfulness and failing to develop assurance in life. By such omission we contribute as much to the destruction of the planet as we enhance it, by acquiring wisdom 
prayerfulness and assurance in life. And so we gradually come to intimate what spiritual science can become for us in our feeling life if it takes hold of the whole of our being. The end of Lecture 5